I learned early on that you fight the fights you can win. If you think big and you allow yourself to think big and you believe in your thoughts and you believe in your abilities and yourself, there is no way that you will not do well. Hi there, welcome to the Look for Strength podcast, where we share exceptional stories from exceptional individuals around the world for exceptional listeners. I'm Amay Luck, and I'm your host. Today, I'll be speaking with professional basketball player, coach, and author Alex Awumi. He wrote his autobiography, Gaddafi's Point Guard, in 2013 after playing for Al Nasser, the Libyan basketball team. He joined the team right before the Libyan civil war broke out in 2011. When the conflict escalated right outside, Awumi was forced to stay in his apartment without food or electricity for weeks. In part one, we'll discuss why he started playing basketball, his experience playing in Libya, and how his life changed overnight in the face of the Libyan civil war. Let's jump right in. All right. Hi, Alex. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So I kind of want to start with your journey with basketball. So growing up, what did your journey with basketball look like um, as it led you to play professionally? Um, Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I started, you know, I was born and raised in um, Lagos, Nigeria. I would say raised. I lived there for 10 years of my life as a a youth. Um, But I started there. Um, I started with my dad kind of bringing back VHS tapes from his like work trips to America. Um, you know, back, that was the eighties in Nigeria. So we didn't have access to <laughs> TV and watching basketball and Michael Jordan and Larry Burns and players like that. So it was like more of like vintage players from like the sixties and seventies. Right. Um, and then we, we would just recreate that, like, in I would say a backyard, but like on our village, like gravel, Right. We're like, yeah. <laughs> we're like some flip flops on just playing on like a milk crate. So we didn't know anything about the game. We didn't know any rules. We were just out there screwing around. And then, you know, it kind of started that when as, as we moved to the States. Um, as, when I say we, I say me, and my, I mean, me and my brothers, we moved to the States. We kind of figured out more organized basketball. Um, we moved to Boston. My mom is originally from Cambridge. Um, so we kind of, you know, got into it as youths, uh, 11, 12 years old. It became more like, a, you know, when you're that age, it's more like a social thing. I tell kids like, you know, if your friends, whatever sports your friends are playing, that's probably the sports you're going to end up playing as like a teenager, senior high school. And if you're good enough, go to college. So mine's happened to be basketball. In my neighborhood, there were basketball courts probably like every three or four blocks. And everybody got in the basketball courts after church, after school. And then, you know, I'm one of seven kids. I have four brothers and we would go up to the court and we would just wreak havoc, you know? (laughs) And then it was that way. People saw our talent and people saw my talents and say, hey, man, you guys are very strong. You guys are very athletic. You guys are very good. And then as time went on, you know, that's how I kind of started to say, you know what, this is fun. And it was a sport that the majority of my friends, my social group, really enjoyed so I enjoyed as well so I, I just kept it that way 
And then as you, in your book, you kind of talk about how you progressed and, and played college college basketball. And then uh, subsequently, why did you decide to play for Al Nasser in, in the first place? Um, well, so when I graduated college, you know, there was only two, two things you could do. Like, you know, everybody wants to play in the NBA, right? Statistically, I think it's like one, right now, like 1.5% of the players that graduate college get drafted to the NBA. That's a very small percentage, right? But there are the avenues you could take. You could go overseas. You know, there's uh, lots of ways you can make very good money overseas to um, to provide for your family or just to make a living, right? Yeah. And any 22, 23, 23-year-old kid is going to jump at the opportunity to go play in Serbia, France, uh, <laughs> Dubai, you know, those, uh, you know, amazing countries, you know, especially people who are like from the inner city in Boston or New York City. Um, so for me, my journey leading up to Al Nasser was like, I was in, um, I was in Macedonia and I was in a bad situation. When I say bad, it's more like my professionally for me as a, as an athlete, I need certain things to be taken care of in my contracts, certain things weren't taken care of. So I had an opportunity, um, by my agent who was also Macedonian and he came with this opportunity to go play in Libya. Um, the money was very good. And the situation was better. In my, in my mind, I said, you know, anything could just, anything's better than what I am, what I'm in right now. So that's what I was thinking. I said, I, get, I need to get out of here. So it took me like maybe two or three days to actually get to Libya. But this, the, the main reason was because I needed a better basketball situation professionally uh, because my, I take pride in being professional as far as like, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, basketball, whether it's corporate, whether if I, I'm on the movie studio, it doesn't matter. I just like to be professional when I don't see things going like that on the other end. I kind of try to make a change. So that was it for me. I wanted to make a change to go play for Al Nasser. Money was good. Um, it seemed like a very professional situation. The club was great. Um, so that's how I got there. When you were in Libya, what was the team environment like and how is that kind of different to the teams you were on in the U.S.? Okay, yeah, so the team environment in Libya was very, when I got there, it was very, it was very tense, right? Because um, when you, when you're playing in Europe, losing, especially if you're on a team with like a big budget, losing is not acceptable, right? You could lose one game here maybe you could lose two in a row when you're losing three or four games and then but you have like the biggest budget one of the biggest budgets in within that league that is kind of shunned upon um i've you know i've seen this in a lot of countries so i'm the type of guy like they'll bring in like when things have gone wrong all right things are going wrong we need like a replacement i call a replacement killer right you come in this guy comes and kind of cleans up and does the job i came in things were kind of like everybody was kind of tense the players were kind of tense um, you could see like when the coach was kind of making, raising his voice in practices, players kind of were like, kind of were like curl up. And, you know, this is customary, you know, me as a player, even though if I coach youth kids, I might raise my voice a little bit, right? You know, it happens, right? Yeah. It's normal. But this was different. Like these were grown men that were kind of like curling up. And that was like kind of un unusual to me, yeah. right? You know, I grew up in the inner city, you know, playing in the inner city basketball in Boston and coaches yell all the time. I mean, there's this vowel, this the language is terrible. But we're 14 years old, 15 years old, 17, 18 years old, and it's just normal to us, right? Yeah. And even in my journeys within like my other countries, I played in, in Europe, 
in Africa. It was customary for a coach to yell. It's a stressful environment. Um, but players didn't curl up like this in the past when I played, when I got to Libya. So I knew it was more than just, hey, we lost three in a row. We're not competing. Um, I found out things got physical um, with some of like the team managers, with the players, um, not necessarily coach, but some of like the team managers who are actually Libyan, who are actually from like the city of Benghazi. Um, and it kind of like, it was like, I felt like that kind of translates into like a bad work environment, not just like a basketball environment. Yeah. Translates into a bad work environment. People don't perform well that way under that type of pressure. I know I don't have no problem performing. I'm just a competitor. But, you know, majority of my teammates were like from Benghazi. They were local guys. Yeah. And I think some people on, some people in the management standpoint on the team took advantage of the fact that some of these kids came up through their basketball academy. So they know some of these kids say were 10, 11 years old. They knew their parents. They knew what streets they live on. So they took advantage of that, right? Whereas a guy like me, you can't do that. I'm a new guy. I'm a big guy. I don't play that. I don't take, you know, I don't take yeah. no BS. Um, but still, I have to I have to work with these guys, <laughs> right? So yeah. if, if my workers are, are coming to work saying, oh, I got to be here again. I can't make a mistake. I just think that's crazy. Like, um, so yeah, so the basketball environment started, it started off kind of crazy when I started, um, but eventually ten, things took a turn for the better, like playing wise. And did you feel like there was any political pressure on your team? And like, what was the connection of the team to the government, if you have any insight? The, the league in Libya was government funded, right? Every team gets a piece of money for the government. Um, but our team, we kind of, took pride and we had the country's colors. Um, we had green and white. And then our, the government gave us a little, a lot more money than they will give the other team. <laughs> right, right. So um, realistically, majority of our money came from the Gaddafi family, right? We were their team, right? Benghazi is kind of where um, the Gaddafi family kind of overthrew the king and like kind of took their stronghold of the country. Um, even though it was like nothing but like a desert land, you know, it was just like where they started and they kind of built this team around like the family. So when they put in millions and millions and extra funding and then we're not winning, but are used to, they were used to winning. So that's the thing. They always won on the, on the football side, the soccer side, they put a lot of money as well. Um, but when it gets to that point where you see like, oh, we lost another game, the the people who are on top of the people are going to be upset. Um, it, it That's where it got there. And I walked into that, <laughs> you know, that was the yeah. problem with it. I didn't know what was going on. I was looking around like, Hey, like, you know, and you know, they kind of explained to me, yeah, you know, everybody gets money from the government, but we are like the team for the family. So we can't, we, we can't, you know, we could get to a championship and lose a game, but we can't lose three or four games in a row. That's not, that's unacceptable. And I didn't know that. So I'm like, I'm, this is what I'm coming into. <laughs> I mean, this is very stressful. Like, you know, this is a lot of pressure on me, but you know, it is what it is. Once I get in between those lines and play basketball, everything's just kind of shut off. Right. Did you ever meet Gaddafi? And what was that like? Um, well, you know, that was like kind of the plan to meet Muammar Gaddafi. And I think we had a meeting. It was like a team dinner or a team gathering we had to do in Tripoli in the capital but I did meet a son my very first game when I got there I got his son got a chance to walk on the court while we were warming up and introduce himself um 
Saudi. And, you know, he's a very well-spoken man. I think, you know, he was um, educated in London, um, like the majority of their family is. Um, spoke very well, um, met his kids, a big basketball fan, big sports fan. Um, yeah, so, you know, you could say I met like an extension of the family. Um, but I think, you know, in the next like month or two or so, we were going to like, when we went back to Tripoli, to the capital to play, we were going to actually go meet Muammar Gaddafi and like the rest of the family. And I was actually excited about that. And so were the players um, because, you know, this was like a hero to them. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> he's everywhere. You know, you go to, you know, you drive on the highway, billboards everywhere. So it was a big deal for me. It was just like, you know, I look at Obama as like that type of person. Yeah. For them, they were like, you know, this is crazy. We get to, we get to meet him. I was like, okay. So, I, you know, I had to get excited for them. You know, it was like, you know, some of them, they hadn't met him. They were 22 years old, 23, 25, never met this guy. And, you know, it's not customary to be you meet world leaders like you know i've never met a president yeah. like you know what i mean <laughs> so yeah. um yeah so you know that was set up um but eventually you know that didn't happen okay and and when the the arab spring kind of broke out was it talked about amongst your team how severe it would be or were there kind of safety measures being put in place or um yeah were they basically mitigating risks and and talking about it within your team um, or were you just kind of left in the dark? No, they were talking about it. So, you, you know, a lot of people, the history of the Arab Spring, it started in Tunisia, right? They overthrew the president there. I want to say overthrew, he kind of stepped down. Um, but it kind of skipped a country. So usually when things go like that, it goes from like one country, it goes to another country. So Tunisia, then it went to Libya. No, it kind of skipped us and went to Egypt. Right. Um, because, you know, realistically, Gaddafis are like more, they rule more with like an iron fist. So I understood, I was like, oh yeah, nothing like this is going to happen here. Um, so I should be good. <laughs> so I skipped and went to, went to Egypt. And when I got to Egypt, we felt it because our head coach, our assistant coach, our strength trainer, they were all from Cairo. Right. And millions of people are rioting, people are dying. Then that's when it really hit us because we had to see our leader, our coach, pretty much depressed for like the next week or two mm -hmm. and the fact that he can actually go home right so he, you know as a man i have to go home and protect my family him trying to get home would have been more dangerous than him just kind of staying in yeah. libya with us right so we're practicing and we're coming to practice and you know he was a very vocal leader and you come to a practice and he's just like kind of somber it's not, it's unusual. So you're like, you know, yeah. something's going on. So yeah, I had, I had to talk with him. I said, coach asked me, he was like, yeah, he's like my family. He's like, I'm just not doing good. And it kind of trickled down from the coaches to the players. And yeah, it really hit us hard. We were there for a couple, you know, it was happening for a couple of weeks and we had to watch this on, on the news every day. Um, I couldn't imagine me like, you know, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, just like in Cairo, while there are millions of people in the street, police are like, you know, kind of, hitting people with tear gas or shooting people that you know that that was hard it was hard and um it affected us as a team it affected our play it affected our practices but at that point it wasn't really about basketball it was more like just about like being a human and being there for him and the other coaches who were from Egypt yeah. um so yeah it did it had a crazy effect on us and then when did you kind of begin to feel unsafe in Libya and realize how severe the Arab Spring would be in Libya um and how it would affect you 
I, I tell people this happened. It had literally happened overnight. Like I literally went to bed, woke up, and then it was like Armageddon. Uh, because leading up to it, you know, you had small pocket of protest in the city. Like you know, I you know I kind of wake up. I might take a walk down the street to like the market to get something to eat. You might see twenty people protesting, right? Yeah. Um, my driver would drive me to practice, and then I'd say, "Hey, could we stop by the juice bar like to get some fresh juices?" Another pocket of like twenty or thirty people protesting. Um, and then the next morning, um, you know, usually I usually get up at eight o'clock, eat my cornflakes, and then my driver's usually down there by 8 45, 9 o'clock to take me to practice for like to start for 9 30. Well, you know, the arena was next door. And um he didn't call me. Like I set my alarm, I was waiting for him, I was calling him. It was going straight through to straight to voicemail. And then I kind of um I called my coach. Um because you know Europe, you get fined if you show up late for practice. <laughs> so I called him and I said, uh, I said, hey, you know, he didn't come, you know, I don't have no way to get to practice. And he the coach is screaming, like, practice. Like, you don't see what's going on outside. Do not come outside. So I had to go to the, uh, you know, I kind of um I was I looked at the phone, I was kind of lost. And um, I could hear that in the he sounded like he was in a car, my coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of hung up the phone and then I'm instead of me going down all the way downstairs because the buildings were so high and buildings were blocking views, I went to the rooftop. I was on the summer floor, go to the eighth floor, there's a rooftop up there. And I saw the protest turn into like two, 300 people, blocks of people, crazy. Uh, So I go back downstairs um, and I'm just kind of like, you know, I guess I'm not going to practice today type of thing. Uh, But through one of my windows, I could hear the protest get louder. So I'm like, geez, this sounds like it's right outside of my window. Yeah. And I hear like another horn, loud horn coming from like the other side of the building. So I go back up again. This had literally it was 15 minutes later. And yeah. I see military coming from one side and protesters coming from the other side. And, um, you know, literally within like two minutes, it turned deadly. Right. You know, and the day before I was at my favorite juice spot. I was at the butcher getting some meat to prepare dinner for like the week. Yeah. I wasn't getting fruit, like literally overnight. I literally went to sleep watching. I remember I might've been watching like Seinfeld or something like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like went to sleep at like 11 PM and literally woke up eight o'clock the next day. And it was just like a whole nother world. So it literally happened overnight. Realistic, like my life changed yeah. just, just in the blink of an eye. Um, yeah. So you know, literally that's how it went down. And so while you were in your apartment, how long were you there for then and, and couldn't leave? Yeah, so I was, a lot of people say couldn't leave, right? You know, if I was crazy enough, I would have left, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Course, you know? Yeah, yeah like, you know, and like, you know, I've done some crazy things in my life, but you know, this was different. So I was there like, you know, almost three weeks, um, over three weeks, actually. Um, couldn't leave, shortage of food, shortage of water. You know, they cut off the internet. Yeah. They cut off electricity. And was that uh, the government when you say they? Yeah, the government, the government. Um, you know, we found out later, you know, everything was cut off. They literally kind of just try to put a stranglehold on the city. Um, literally that quick. Like it happened. Like again, when I was on my rooftop and I saw, you know, the co- the collision from the military and the people, I went downstairs and literally. I think like five minutes later, like I couldn't, you know, I had the USB internet plug into the computer. 
I couldn't access that. Access that. Wow. Uh, lights. I, there were no. There were no lights. Electricity was gone. The water was cut off. It was just like little things that kind of just. It was like one thing after the one thing after the other. I tried to pick up my phone. I had a, like a small Nokia phone. Try to. I try to make a call. Call failed. It was like I was like this is like out of a movie. Like I'm dreaming. And then, you know, you just go into a stir, into a panic. You hear people screaming outside. Um, you hear, you know, semi-automatic rifles going off. And then, you know, I'm like, I'm like, you know, and I'm doing all this while I'm standing by the window. So I'm like, oh, I, you know, I, I had to, you know, lay on the ground. Um, so it was just a lot at just literally like within like a 30 minute span. It was just too much. It was just too much. Um, yeah, three weeks, no food, no water, minimal food, no water. And just me by myself, right? You know, by myself. And you know, you look out the window, you see um, military on foot, you see tanks. It's like I'm not going on there. Like, <laughs> like you know, they don't care if I'm just like a regular guy from Boston. Like, you know, oh. like they don't care. Like, you know, you I don't know. Like, you'd have any protection being an American and like be playing on their national basketball team you have you have protection that the neighborhood knows you but at that point i'm i don't recognize these military people yeah. i'm not willing to take that risk of like hey i'm american look at my passport yeah. they don't care <laughs> like you know the country's going crazy there's 300 people that are dead on the street like you know their, their adrenaline is crazy like you know so i wasn't willing to take that risk i you know kind of did what i said you know i'm gonna do what was best for me right now. Um, I have to stay alive. That's the most important thing. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Look for Strength podcast today. In part two, you'll hear about how Alex escaped the Libyan civil war, how his relationship with basketball changed, and how he told the story of those who helped save his life along the way. See you soon. I get to be part of his development. And then as he gets older, I can see things that I taught him in him that he's using those things. And for me, that was just amazing. <laughs> like, you know, it was like the, you know, the greatest form of therapy. Like, you know what I mean? And then you get to see, you get to see the kids happy. Um, you get to see them improving, whether small improvements, big improvements. But, you know, it, it, seeing the kids happy kind of made it easier for me as far as like day-to-day -day things, as far as basketball.